0: Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and this episode, we explore how collaboration can help journalists to find and tell better data stories. Teaming up with local reporters on an investigation or digging through dirty data with experts can have value in helping to unearth untold stories. Joining us to discuss this are two data journalists, Betsy Shots and Dylan Bergen, both from MuckRock, a nonprofit collaborative news site that gives you the tools to keep government transparent and accountable. Betsy is a science, health and data journalist reporting on COVID-19 and other public health topics through the Documenting COVID Project at MuckRock. She also writes the COVID-19 Data Dispatch blog and newsletter and freelances for outlets like Science News and 538. Previously, she was a data journalist at Stacker and a volunteer at the COVID Tracking Project. Dylan is Muckrock's data reporter. He uses data and public records to power investigative reporting. He was a member of the Documenting COVID-19 team, a project funded by Muckrock and the Brown Institute for Media Innovation. Before that, he was a Report for America core member with Searchlight New Mexico and a Fulbright Germany journalism fellow. And before we kick off today's podcast, don't forget to take the State of Data Journalism Survey 2022. You can do this by heading over to datajournalism.com survey 2022. And just like last year, you can win some cool prizes. Now let's take a listen to our conversation with MuckRock's Betsy Shots and Dylan Bergen. Betsy and Dylan, I think it would be helpful to sort of start with telling us more about MuckRock. Like, what does your organization do? What regions does it cover? And why is this an important resource?
1: Yeah. So, Tara, like you said, we often say that MuckRock is a nonprofit collaborative news site that helps give you the tools to hold the government accountable. Um, we say you to be clear that the different tools we make aren't just for journalists, but they're just as much for citizens, researchers um, or activists, really anyone. Um, so probably first and foremost, we're FOIA nerds. Um, the rest of what we do largely stems from that. Um, so the MuckRock website helps people file requests. Document cloud helps people then analyze uh, and share government documents they get from those requests and more recently the editorial team that Betsy and I are on, um, it helps newsrooms use public documents and data in their reporting. As for regions, we don't really have a specific region in the United States. Uh, most of our work, especially on the editorial team, uh, is in the United States. Um, our reporting here is focused um, in the U.S., but we really want to work with journalists across the country. Um, so Betsy and I have both collaborated with um, different reporters in newsrooms Uh, from Utah to Missouri to Michigan um, to Mississippi and Louisiana. So
0: you're mainly U.S. focused for FOIA requests. That's correct, right?
1: Yes. um, So the Muckrock filing platform itself um, is mostly U.S. focused. Um, The document cloud tool that we have that helps journalists then analyze documents, um, that's been used by journalists across the world. In um, high profile stories like WikiLeaks, uh, the Panama Papers, and, and the Snowden documents. Um, so, Document Cloud is where all types of different documents can live. Um, the MuckRock filing platform that we have on our website uh, really helps um, anyone in the United States file with their local agencies.
2: I can also add that I think Muck, a lot of the value that MuckRock provides is kind of showing people what can be done with FOIA or with documents and this kind of, you know, document database reporting. reporting. Um, we often will publish uh, what we call reporting recipes, sort of showing the behind the scenes of projects that we're doing, or, you know, explainers that talk about like, here's how you can use a certain type of document or here's how you can think about requesting a certain type of information. And I think that can really be useful anywhere. I know just being for myself, I did not know a lot about FOIA or document-based reporting before I started at MuckRock um, last fall. And I've learned so much over the last year, just sort of being involved in that ecosystem. Um, so I think even just like poking around the website and looking at
0: those different explainer articles, I think can offer a lot to people-based anywhere. Thanks for that overview. Um, I'm curious though, how does MuckRock collaborate with partners like news partners and also the public? Um, Maybe you could share some topics that you guys have collaborated or or worked with different organizations on. Yeah, so
2: I'll start by saying that we're kind of still learning this. I think, you know, as Dylan mentioned, the editorial side of MuckRock is relatively new and kind of came out of the documenting COVID project um which we were both part of sort of as as it joined muckrock um and you know we're 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 still working on like what are the best processes for starting collaborations and and making sure that editorial expectations are clear and stuff like that um, but but generally i would say stories that we work on can come from interesting record sets or data sets that we find really valuable and then we will typically approach local partners that seem like a good fit for a particular region or for a particular topic. Um, So one big example, of course, is the Uncounted project about excess deaths that I think we'll talk about more later. Um, But another, you know, long collaboration that I've worked on has been looking at the pandemic response in the state of Missouri um, with the Missouri Independent, which is a nonprofit newsroom that covers kind of statewide politics and policy there in Missouri. Um, We we've had a lot of success with getting really interesting and extensive documents from the Missouri Health Department and from other agencies in that state. And so a lot of our stories with Missouri Independent have come out of those document sets. Um, like for example, one story that I worked on uh, last fall focused on um, Springfield, which is what the city, one of the major cities in Missouri and an area that um, had a really hard time during the early Delta surge in the in. in summer of 2021, um, and we, through records that we got from the local health department in that, in that part of the state, um, we were able to really kind of show how the the state health department and other agencies were not acting quickly enough to respond to the Delta variant that, at the time, was the most contagious variant we had seen yet in the pandemic. Um, like, for example, not responding to warnings from wastewater surveillance, not responding quickly to you know information from from testing, um, and and failing to build up a new uh, hospital site that would have helped the area respond, um, and you know that that really came out of like the the documents and talking to experts in that area and that kind of thing. Um, it's funny I've never actually been to Missouri, but I have written like I don't even know four or five different Missouri stories with Missouri Independent, so I feel like I know that area very well now. Um, And then we've also done collaborations in other parts of the country. Like I know Dylan has been very involved with a project we're doing in Chicago, looking at air quality data from a new uh, network of air quality sensors that has been set up in the city. Um, And so that's been, you know, a partnership with different local news outlets in Chicago. Um, And then we've also worked with kind of other nonprofit newsrooms, like I worked with Idaho Capital Sun, which is a statewide outlet in Idaho. And I've worked with the Salt Lake Tribune, which is a nonprofit focused in Salt Lake City in Utah. Um, and these pieces really do tend to come from data sets or from specific topics that we think can be kind of
0: better uncovered or explained through data or through records. Brilliant. Um, thanks for that overview. And um, I'm just curious, maybe we could talk a little bit more about the Uncounted project. Um, you both wrote an article for datajournalism.com explaining this, but I just wonder if you could give an overview um, to everyone joining us of, of how that project came about and what it was about and what it uncovered, because it's quite powerful, isn't it?
2: Yeah, so I can start, maybe Dylan, add more as as we go on. but. So this project really started with an article that the Documenting COVID Project published in summer 2021 with the Kansas City Star, which is a a Missouri outlet, um, talking about a coroner in Mason County, Missouri, who told the project that he went against CDC guidance and he would write down a cause of death that did not include COVID-19, even if the person Probably had died from COVID uh, if the family didn't want COVID on the death certificate. Um, and you know, this was a story that really is indicative of larger issues in the death system in the United States. Um, for people who are, who are not familiar, the United States has—I mean, we have a very um, decentralized healthcare system, as I think the pandemic has kind of highlighted for many people. Um, But we also have a decentralized death system when it comes to investigating and kind of recording how people die. Um, So every state has their own process. And even within states, you can have different coroners in different counties who have different procedures, different levels of resources. Sometimes the people who are doing this for a particular county might even be elected. So they have kind of political pressure um, or they might. Um, they might not be trained at all or they might have very limited training in how to kind of do autopsies or understand how somebody passed away. Um, and all of this, I think, kind of came to light in that in that story. Um, and the story went viral. It was picked up by different outlets. And it caught the interest of Andrew Stokes, who is a demography professor at Boston University School of Public Health. Um, he reached out saying he had also been looking at this problem. He had been trying to figure out, you know, where COVID deaths might have been undercounted across the country. And, you know, he he found that that individual story about this one corner in Missouri to be an example of this bigger problem. So, you know, our team started collaborating with Andrew Stokes, and we have been working with him and his team over the last um, year and a half, I would say. Um... We worked with him on one large story that Dylan was the lead reporter on that was published late last year, um, and that really kind of explored this undercounting problem and highlighted a couple of specific places: um, one county in Missouri, uh, one in Louisiana, and one in Mississippi, where um, we were particularly concerned or where we thought there was, you know, a good example of potential undercounting of COVID deaths. And we we're talking about kind of how the system could be improved or how these Corners and medical examiners who, as I said, might have very different levels of resources and training in different places, can be kind of held accountable for mistakes they might have made during the pandemic. Um, and then this past year, I've been working on a follow-up story that looks more at demographic patterns with excess deaths. Um, so kind of trying to understand, you know, are there certain groups of people um, looking at race and ethnicity that are more likely to be undercounted. Um, and that story is gonna come out in the next month or two. Um, so just, uh, I have, just to clarify in case folks are not familiar with the terminology. So excess deaths is a metric that demography researchers use to kind of examine the true toll of a public health event. So the process for calculating this is that you have kind of an expected number of deaths that you would, you would expect to see in a given place in a given time frame, based on previous patterns, previous mortality patterns, and then you compare that ex- expected estimate to the deaths that actually occur. Um, and COVID often has, you know, contributed to a huge number of excess deaths. Like I live in New York City, where we had a horrible first wave, and there was, you know, that period in 2020. Um, our excess deaths were twice the expected number. Um, for a couple of months, and that, that kind of shows how even going beyond the deaths that are officially attributed to COVID, you can see that there, there are
0: people who are dying who would not have been if there weren't a pandemic, essentially. And Dylan, I just wondered if you had anything to add maybe about the impact of this uh, and why this is important, The story.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to add that, um like Betsy said, I think one of the really important parts um, of this story was the very different systems and um, different contexts of death investigation across the country. Um, and that's also what made this uh, this project so important for us in terms of collaboration. Um, because while we were working with demographers um, at Boston University to kind of see the high level view of the metric Betsy just mentioned, which is excess deaths, so how many more people died in a certain time period um, than normal. Um, we were also wondering, OK, we knew this at the county level or at the uh, state or nationwide level. What's causing this in these different places across the country? Um, and to be able to do that, we really needed to work with local reporters in each of these places and understand, well, how does death investigation work in this in this area of the country? Is it a coroner system? Is it a medical examiner system? Is it something else? Um, what do people what what are the trends in deaths and um, mortality in this area? Um, and are what we seeing at the the nationwide scale, or is what we're seeing at the nationwide scale, um, does that um, kind of trickle down uh, into these different places across the country? Um, and how does the the lack of cohesiveness in death investigation um, across the country lead to uh, a larger likelihood that uh, COVID deaths or, or certain types of deaths can be? Um, coded incorrectly um, or missed uh, as, as what they should have been uh, recorded as. Um, So I think one of the really important parts of this story was telling both that really big story uh, about how um, we're likely missing a large amount of uh, deaths in our uh, COVID toll, our COVID death toll um, that we're looking at or that we're hearing about constantly, um, but also how is that happening? Or, or why, why is that happening across the country? Um, and to do that, we needed to work with both the you know, the experts that could help with the larger level or higher level modeling, but also with the reporters on the ground who know their community well um, and can help speak with the corners, speak with um, local health officials, and figure out what um, what this really means for that community.
0: I just wonder if, either of you could speak to the benefits and challenges we're working with experts on this COVID-19 investigation. For instance, you referenced that demographer from the University of Boston. What was that like and what did you learn and how did you kind of cover the gaps with both of your investigative skills?
1: One of the really important um, parts of working with uh, the 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 team at Boston University was being able to see the far and the near and, and see the full scope of an issue while also be being able to see clearly in detail how that issue pans out um, across the country. Um, and I think it's important for reporters, especially data reporters early on in investigations to identify experts that they know that they can come back to and kind of um, have a continual relationship with. Um, in which you can gut check things, um, throw ideas out and um, just kind of process what you're finding in the data as as you're looking at it and what reporters are telling you on the ground. Um, So one of the benefits of having this team at Boston who um, was working with us in a more official type of collaboration was that we had weekly meetings set up, uh, and even between those weekly meetings, we were often in conversation over email or um, even on Slack, um, going back and forth, and uh, really being able to process things together um, as as we were as we were analyzing the data. And I think that's just such a huge help um, because one of the challenges of collaboration over longer periods of time can be that that keeping momentum. Um, type of factor and, and communicating effectively. Um, you know, everyone works at different paces, um, and, and usually, depending on what someone is working on on a project, they need different different levels of communication or the frequency of communication may be slightly different for them um, in order to get their work done.
2: I think the kind of the different parts of the collaboration can really bring different skill sets and different kinds of resources, which are so helpful. Um, like I often, you know, will ask Andrew Stokes questions and. Even when it's a question that's not directly related to his data or his analysis, he might say like, oh, I know of a paper that can kind of tell you more about that. Or I know of this other expert you should talk to. Um, and having kind of his wealth of ex- of expertise on tomography research and on mortality research specifically is just so helpful. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you know, working with local reporters can be so valuable because they really have... The knowledge of their communities and the, you know, the, the patterns, the major events that have happened. Like in this current story that I've been working on, one of the places that we focus on is Portland, Oregon. Um, and I remember in one of our first meetings with a, a local reporter who we collaborated with at a at a paper in Portland, um, she was saying, "Oh, well, you know, in addition to COVID, we have to think about this heat wave that happened in Portland last summer." Um, in in 2021. Um, And I I had not even thought, like, I saw that news story when it happened, but I wouldn't have thought that that should be sort of worth mentioning in the story, potentially, or worth looking into in the CDC mortality data that we use. Um, And I think that's just kind of an example of, um, you know, having having somebody who brings up an event or brings up kind of an angle that you hadn't thought about because you're not literally living in that place. Um, and then, of course, you know, it, it can be challenging to keep momentum. As Dylan said, I think it often feels like collaboration stories can take twice as long as they would if I, you know, I, as somebody who is part time at Muck Rock and part time freelance, I'm often thinking like, oh, man, if I were just doing this by myself as a freelancer, it'd be so much quicker. But it also like lose so much nuance and so much complexity that it has when you are kind of doing something collaboratively. So that really is kind of the trade-off. I think I'm also very cognizant as somebody who has been reporting on COVID for almost three years now, and as somebody who collaborates with a lot of other COVID reporters, you know, I think we have to kind of be aware of the emotional toll of this kind of reporting and the, you know, the challenges that it can take at various points, like Um, I've, I've been working with reporters who have to kind of take a step back from the investigative project because they have to go and literally do daily COVID coverage during a surge in their community. And you have to, you know, that can be frustrating because you want to keep the project going, but, um, kind of understanding that people have different responsibilities that they're balancing and your project can't be like top priority all the time. I think that having that kind of perspective is helpful.
1: I think one of the, the most fun parts for me is that doing collaborative work, especially with other newsrooms or other other reporters, means you have a team that kind of keeps expanding. Um, and it is really refreshing and exciting to be working with new reporters and to all of a sudden have someone new on your team. And I think there are so many times where I've been working with a reporter um, and going back and forth, and they have a conversation with an expert, and I'm I'm looking at their notes um, from the interview, and I'm like, wow, that was such a good question to ask, I would not have thought about that. Um, or they we're working together on a draft, and you know, I end my day um, and put my part of the draft in, and then I come back tomorrow morning and I see, you know what they had changed or what they suggested. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's that's exactly what I needed or that's exactly what this needed at this point. Um, so I think, you know, one of the the big benefits um, of doing collaboration long term is also, just the excitement and fun of, of getting to work with someone, um, who is constantly adding to the project in a new and different way.
0: We just have a question in the general chat, uh, from Andrea. She's asking at what point in the process of constructing a project do you often bring in experts? Do you rely on them from the the very beginning?
1: I usually, uh, identify a few different experts, experts at the beginning of um, reporting on a specific topic and kind of go to them all and uh, for whatever small amount of time that they're able to offer, do just kind of a very brief interview where I explain what I'm working on, um, just get their general impressions um, and say that in that conversation, I'm just exploring this topic, I'll be working on it continually, but I may come back to you with that, you know, are do you have time for that? Would you, would you like to talk again about this? Or, um, can I come back to you with more questions? Um, and I usually try to get a general idea of what their schedule is like and you know, what their willingness, um, to speak with me is like, uh, and then from that group of initial experts, um, uh, maybe there's one who stands out that was really excited to work with me and seemed to have, um, the time, uh, and interest. And, um, uh, or, you know, maybe just has a specific uh, perspective that I know will be continually useful um, as I'm digging through different data or different um, information from sources. And so I kind of I usually try to identify a what I think of in my mind as like my gut check expert um, so that I know I can come back to this person if I think I've found something new, if I think I'm confused about something, um, and hopefully they'll be able to work with me to clear that up.
2: Yeah, I think it can also depend on the project, though. Like sometimes, as Dylan is saying, you really need to have an expert who is helping to kind of check your data or check your work and is kind of part of the story at different points throughout the process. Um, But sometimes you might also be working on multiple stories on a similar topic um, and you might have an expert who you kind of continue to go back to over time. On different pieces. Um, like just for an example for myself, there's one scientist in Missouri who helps run the state's wastewater surveillance program. And I've talked to him for like, I don't know, four or five different stories, some of which are specifically about wastewater, some of which are more about kind of different public health questions or are about Missouri. And, you know, he can often be kind of a helpful person to give some basic commentary and to tell me who else I should be talking to. Um, which can be really valuable, um, to kind of have those ongoing relationships. I think that's something a lot of science and health reporters do in general, just sort of collecting experts over time who you'd like to talk to and who you know can give you valuable insight and who can kind of point you to others.
0: Right. And I wonder if we could sort of circle back more to MuckRock's website, because I was poking around on it yesterday, having a look. I wonder if you could talk us through... Like the how it basically works when filing public record requests.
2: Um, so basically, Muckrock's website is set up to make it really, really easy to file a public records request with any agency of the United States, basically. Um, so you can make make an account and then search for a, an agency, whether that is uh, from state government, a national agency, or a local agency, like say, a local police department or a local public school system, I think those are really common agencies to be requested. And then MuckRock has kind of a template um, FOIA request that will fill out key details. Like for example, if you're filing in the state of Missouri, it will put in the name of Missouri's sunshine law so that that's kind of referenced in there. Or if you're filing in the state of New York, it will put in New York's law and it will put in things like the number of days that the state agency or the local agency is required to respond to you. Um, And then once you send out the request, it will be kind of posted publicly on the website for other people to look at and for other people to see what's being requested and even use your request As a model, if they're requesting something similar, you know, maybe somebody sees, oh, this other reporter made this interesting request to a a public school system in this state. And I want to do something similar to this for this school system that I cover in my state. Um, I think it kind of allows a lot of informal, not collaboration, but informal kind of learning from each other. Um, I mean, as I have learned more about FOIA myself, I definitely look at past MuckRock requests and I appreciate having everything kind of shared out. And then when requests are completed, you know, our the support staff that we have at MuckRock usually does a great job of making sure that all the data and all the documents are posted publicly as well. Uh, so you can kind of build off of the results of the requests too, uh, if that's something you're interested in.
1: I think like Betsy said, MuckRock really takes out a lot of the legwork of following up uh, on requests and doing the nitty gritty type of daily uh, work to make sure that you get that information back that you're asking for. Um, but also what I've found over like over and over again is, is very useful, like Betsy said, uh, is looking at previous requests. Um, if you click on a, on a, a request on the Muckrock platform, there's also a button to clone it, um, and you could send it off um, using the same language or change the language slightly for your specific agency. Um, and even when i do know what i'm looking for i often search that topic or or something related to it in the muckrock platform just to see how people are wording their request specifically you know if it's i'm asking for say documentation on use of force um from a uh, police department uh, i'll often wonder well in my state or in a state near me um how how did someone phrase this request how many uh how many years, for example, of data did they ask for? Um, what was the exact format uh, uh, that the request came back in? And I think going through the MuckRock platform with an eye for that kind of document state of mind, you know, how, how do I find things that I'm looking for? Where is it uh, in a government agency's filing cabinet? How do they talk about it? I think the platform is really useful for just uh, immersing yourself in, in that document state of mind.
2: There are a lot of practical things that can be really helpful as well that I wanted to mention. Um, for example, there are some instances still when you file a FOIA request that an agency will want to mail you something or will want to have you send something in the mail and MuckRock will literally do that for you. Um, you can also kind of arrange for somebody to help you file a request in a state that you don't live in. Um, like I once filed a request uh, to Virginia's health department. Um, and I don't live in Virginia, which for that state means you can't file a FOIA request, except that with MuckRock, you can kind of ask somebody who lives in Virginia to file the request for you by proxy. Um, so there are just a lot of little things like that could, that can kind of be helpful and and be made easier. Um, and of course, if your request you know goes wrong or if you have questions, um, MuckRock is there to kind of help
0: triage things um, and help point you to resources and stuff like that, which is really great as well. I probably should have asked this before, but this is like open source and it's free, correct? Yes.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think there is, uh, there's like a paid tool if you want to file a lot of requests. Um, But yeah, anybody can make an account and kind
0: of start there. And I guess the best part is, is that it's kind of everything is, the government is held accountable because these requests are then open and people can check them out and reporters can use it for their reporting.
1: And you have, have proof if you're looking for a specific document from an agency and they fulfilled that request two or three years ago, uh, and you see that request on the MuckRock platform, it would be really easy to go back to that agency and say, hey, you fulfilled this request at this time. Um, here's, the, here's the actual request, um, just linking to MuckRock, um, and here's what your response was. Can I have a, an updated version of that request?
0: Brilliant. Um, Dylan, I was poking around on your website yesterday, preparing for this talk, just looking at your bio. And I noticed that one of the guiding principles on your your website said, you look at who the data serves and who benefits from it in your reporting. And I just thought that that was like a really good way to frame like, yeah, investigative reporting in general. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about a story you did on air quality in California, kind of using that, that framework, so to speak.
1: In in many instances, I think investigative reporting is exactly that, Tara. I think it's um, about the information that some people, um, usually people in positions of authority or power, uh, want to remain undisclosed. Uh, so as a reporter, I often ask myself, who would it serve to have this information? or who should know about this data that doesn't, or who should know about this information that doesn't. Um, and I think even better than the California wildfire story, just in this on this specific topic, um, is a story that I worked on um, about evictions during the CARES Act. Um, this was in New Mexico. Um, and that's when this, this way of, of thinking or approaching investigative data reporting really became clear to me. Um, for that investigation, um, we were scraping web pages of eviction case dockets on New Mexico's electric um, electronic court record systems website um, because all of these dockets were there and all this information about um, these court cases were there, um, but not in any aggregate way. Um, so that story kind of started, uh, I guess, to go back a little bit Uh when I received some tips uh, from a legal aid attorney um, that he believed that landlords who qualified for the CARES Act um, in New Mexico were continuing to file evictions um, despite qualifying, meaning that their tenants um, should not have been evicted or or no eviction should have even been filed on their tenants. um, But that was still happening. Um, But I quickly realized that the information to answer this question or to kind of see the bigger picture on this question wasn't even out there. Um, so, if I was wondering what landlords in New Mexico or in Albuquerque are really filing evictions, um, and how do I know where that's happening, and how do I know if they qualify for the CARES Act, um, that information wasn't there in an aggregate way. Um, if you looked up the public case documents, you could one by one click on each of these web pages. Um, if you knew a specific landlord, um, or specific uh, property, uh, and look at it that way. But there was no way to see quickly uh, where this was happening. Um, So what we ended up doing was was, uh, scraping all these web pages uh, and then aggregating the data and analyzing the data ourselves to see where and if this was actually happening on a larger scale. Um, if this went beyond just what the, uh, the legal aid attorney, uh, had told us about the few clients that he had. Um, and I think that's really important, uh, because it comes back to this idea of who, who has the data, um, who does it serve and who benefits from it landlords. Um, they can purchase commercial databases of information to check their tenants history uh, that's really easily available, um, even though this data is is often bogus and can link evictions to the wrong people. Um, so they have the data. Uh, landlords have data, lots of data on tenants. Uh, but if you're a tenant and you're wondering, do I qualify for the CARES Act um, or has my landlord evicted me in um, violation of the CARES Act uh, or other information on your landlord it's just it's not there um so tenants don't have that type of data on their landlords whether it's the history of that landlord's evictions code violations do we run one reports um you know about heat that's not working or pipes that weren't fixed uh and so this became uh an example to me of where there's kind of a dynamic of one person who has a lot of information or a lot of data but it serves a completely different pr- purpose in their hands and then a group of people that don't have that information, and not having that information um, is is uh, harmful to them. Or something that they they would benefit from having um, the same information that this other group has. Um, so I think that's where that that line on my website really comes from. And before I end that that thought, I just wanted to say that while we were working on that project, um, I was actually uh, using or coming continually coming back to. Um, Vinny de Jong's, uh Python for data journalist or Python for journalists course, and specifically her section on web scraping with Python on the data journalism website. So that was really the first um tutorial that I did on the data journalism website, and it was a huge help to me.
0: Great. So glad to hear it. <laughs> uh, thanks for giving an overview, Dylan, on on like, you know, that guiding principle for investigative and data journalists. Um that see, I saw earlier um on the muck rock website that you were um you wrote a call-out piece about covering long COVID. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that and that investigation that you're working on? And if does that tie that that's nothing to do with the uncounted project, right? That's separate.
2: Yeah, I mean it's a separate project, although I think it definitely kind of follows from a lot of the same practices and principles. Um, Like similar to what Dylan was talking about, I have really appreciated working at MockRock as an opportunity to kind of do deeper dives into topics and to do more accountability reporting that kind of uses data as a tool to see, you know, who is being represented and who is not in in particular data sets or in particular like research. Um, And with regards to long COVID, I I mean, I think most people will probably know this, but you know, COVID is not just an acute illness. You can have symptoms that last for months or even years uh, that come after coronavirus infection. And it's still the the disease is still not very well defined. It's still kind of scientists are still kind of trying to better understand it. But we do know that it impacts millions of people in the United States and potentially many more globally. Um, and. I as I have done a lot of work on this topic as kind of a freelance science and health reporter, but something I noticed in doing kind of individual one-off freelance stories is that people I think aren't doing a great job of kind of connecting the dots on different topics related to long covid. Like you might have a science writer do a great explanation of what this condition is and how it's impacting people and kind of what the symptoms look like. You know, you might have a great health reporter do a piece about medical research um, you might have somebody kind of explain the data that we have so far on the condition, or you might have kind of a, a reporter do a piece about how having long COVID can impact people's finances. For example, people have, might lose their jobs if they're having long-term symptoms that make it difficult to work. Um, and there there are all these different kind of areas, but I thought you know, it would be, it would be really important to connect these topics and to show, for example, um, how you need to have good healthcare in order to provide documentation to an employer to ask for accommodations at work, or you need to find a doctor who will help you document your symptoms with long COVID in order to apply for disability benefits, um, or even in order to kind of help your friends and family understand what it is you're going through, um, and kind of showing how these different, it's not just about healthcare, it's about how healthcare connects with all of these other aspects of, of a patient's life um and i think it's also important to kind of take an accountability lens for this this topic i think science and health reporters can be great at explaining research and kind of giving perspectives from patients um but they're not always connecting it to the people in power who can actually make a difference on these issues um and that's what i would really like to do with this project um so the the post that you mentioned included a airtable form for people with long covid and for Others in the long COVID community, whether that be researchers or caretakers or anybody else, you know, people who have related conditions um, to kind of fill out and share their experiences and share story tips. And we've really gotten a lot of responses from that form so far that I'm excited to kind of be going through and be using as inspiration for different reporting Um, and to really be taking that lens of like, what could specific government agencies be doing better here? What could Biden have done to better address this crisis? Um, what could specific departments and specific date, states have done to better address this? Um, and are there places that are doing a good job that could kind of be highlighted as examples for the rest of the country or for the rest of the world? Um, so I think that's kind of what I'm looking for with this
0: project. Brilliant. Um, one of the things people often ask because on, the podcast or whatever we do. This is sort of what are your tools and coding languages? What do you what do you know? I, I know Dylan mentioned uh, Python, but I wonder um, if, if there's other languages that you your your go to sources and go to tools that you use to find and tell stories.
1: Yeah, I uh, started coding by learning Python, uh, I think, which was helpful later on, uh, but the language or the programming language that I kind of think in and work most often in now is R. Um, I think just in terms of the tidyverse, uh, which is a set of packages in R um, and all the other types of uh, of really useful data analysis specific packages uh, in R, um, I think it's just it's such a great resource and the community is really great. Um, there's lots of tools out there um, for learning R as a journalist. Um, Several courses that I can't think of the names of right now, but um, maybe I can uh, send a link over after this. Um, but I I think R for me is uh, is is the tool that I come back to the most. Um, and again, because of the those tidyverse packages, I think it makes it really easy to do the types of things, um, the very basic math and just kind of slicing and dicing, um, pivoting, um, just aggregating data that. Journalists want to do very quickly. Uh, I think the uh, the tidyverse packages are just they're the there's they're organized in a way um, that makes it really easy for journalists to do that um, quickly uh, and to have it very well documented exactly what they did to the data and and how.
2: Um, yeah, Dylan is definitely more of a coder than I am. I'm still kind of a novice at R and Python, although I, I have a bit of familiarity with both of those. I'm mostly somebody who uses Excel and Google Sheets to do kind of basic data analysis. And then, you know, I'll work with folks like Dylan who have more of that kind of coding or, you know, deeper analytical skill set. I will also kind of shout out the the platforms I use to make data visualizations really easily. I'm a big fan of Flourish and Data Wrapper. Um, I think when you kind of want to look, get a better look at what what your data set is showing, looking at trends, or making a visualization for a story, like those are great tools to use, and I appreciate the the ability to do that without like learning D three or something. Um, I also am a bit I'm a fan of Tableau and platforms like that for kind of more more detailed visualizations. Um, I also think just in terms of you know platforms that it's it's helpful to know. I mean, I think Slack and other kind of communication tools that folks use are really important, particularly when you're thinking about collaborating. I think being able to adapt to different tools that kind of other teams are using and being able to kind of integrate into their workflow, whether that's with Slack or Teams or regular phone calls, I think that's just really, really important.
0: And going back to what you were saying, Dylan, about Python versus R, do you find R is maybe more athletic for your purposes of investigating and digging through dirty data
1: <laughs> yeah i don't want to get into the uh the mini uh r versus python wars um but i think um for me uh like i said the uh the tidyverse packages uh they have especially a package called dplyr has these things called verbs which for anyone who's learned excel um would it would make a lot of sense for them um and so i think learning R. Uh, was at first very intuitive to me um, and then became very fluid for me just moving over from uh, working in uh, Google Sheets or Excel. Um, So I think I had that kind of introduction um, and then uh, just several different, uh, I think, small things about the syntax of R um, were easier for me to learn and work with. Um, and, uh, I think for most journalists also R studio and the way that, uh, that packages are installed in R, um, is a lot easier to work with than getting a Python environment set up. Um, so I think that's probably another plus for journalists using R. Um, even though I'm sure there are a lot of things that you can do with Python and, and like the pandas, uh, packages that are very similar to R. Um, I usually recommend R just again, because it's easy to learn moving from spreadsheets or Google sheets. Um, and also uh um because of the r studio uh app um and that just being a little bit easier to use than a than a python environment
0: and I'm curious, I know we talked about this a little bit before, but with a lot of people leaving twitter, um what other platforms are you going to go to to learn and follow more about data journalism' Because I know I, for a long time the d d j hashtag was like really popular on Twitter. A lot of people are moving to Mastodon, and I'm just curious if if there's any um platforms that are jumping out at you that would work really well for apart from Discord, of course, <laughs> which isn't normally where people go for data journalism, but we have a channel here,
2: yeah, I mean, I think Mastodon is sort of is good from my experience there so far. I made an account a couple of weeks ago when everybody started really freaking out about Twitter potentially collapsing. Um, so it's it's Betsy LaDogets at Jorna dot host. I think is the the handle if folks are curious. Um, but so far, what I'm finding is that with Mastodon, you're maybe not like it's harder for things to go viral there, kind of by design, since everything is you know, in different servers. And I think people generally aren't following as many people, and that kind of like the audience is a bit smaller and more um intentional. But at the same time, you know, when I'm posting, say, a COVID story that I've written, I'm not as concerned about like trolls jumping on it. I think people are more there to kind of have genuine conversations, which I could see being helpful for data journalism. Um, I'm also a big fan of Slack, which is kind of similar to Discord in its capacity for, you know, hosting servers and and having kind of people, you know, talking and in a somewhat organized way. Um, there's a Slack called News Nerdery, which I think a lot of data journalists who are based in the US are part of. And you know, I think it's kind of similar to the data journalism Discord. It's a place for people to kind of ask questions and share resources. Um, I've also been on the NICAR listserv for a long time and I always find that to be a helpful space. Um, that's a listserv run by uh, investigative reporters and editors specifically for data journalists. Um, so I I think the data journalism community will be okay if Twitter dies. Um we might have fewer trolls to deal with, honestly. And Dylan, any thoughts?
1: I think Betsy really covered all the bases there. Um I would also say um I'm just really I, I subscribe to a lot of different newsletters. Um I think from you know, ones like Jeremy Singer vines data is plural to Betsy's uh, COVID data dispatch, um, to ones like warning graphic content. Um I think there's a lot of really great uh newsletters out there. Um so I think uh, one thing that I've done actually is I've taken all my newsletters and moved them over to um a newsfeed um using newsblur. I think I would that's the only thing I would add to all the other resources that Betsy mentioned.
0: And speaking of resources and and learning, I think events are definitely a really good way to learn and, and maybe that's opened up since the pandemic because a lot of them were online and now. They're hybrid. So, I'm wondering what events are you guys planning on going to uh, this year? Are you going to NICAR or any other data or data visualization type events or investigative journalism type events? Yeah,
2: I think MuckRock has actually proposed uh, sessions for the upcoming NICAR conference. So, if any of those pan out, I think we'll be there, Um, might be there anyway. I went to NICAR in person for the first time. Um, this past spring and found it really valuable. I went to a couple of coding boot camps and that kind of thing. Um, So I'm looking forward to that. Um, I also, as a science and health journalist, I'm pretty active in Science Writers and the Association of Health Journalists, um, which are kind of other professional orgs in the US that are less data focused, but kind of still have some data people or have like science and health journalists who are excited to learn about data and investigative reporting. Um, So I I appreciate being parts of those communities as well.
1: I actually have not been to NICAR in person yet. Um, I've only been to NICAR online. So I am planning on going to NICAR this year and really, really looking forward to it.
0: Um, Well, I think that's it for today. That's all we've got time for. Thank you again for coming on today, uh, Dylan and Betsy. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thanks everyone for joining us today and asking your questions. Thank you
1: for having us. Yeah, thank you so much for having us.
0: A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Want to hear more interesting discussions on data journalism? You can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. You can also get the podcast straight to your inbox by subscribing to our newsletter at com slash subscribe. Before you go, we want to remind you to take the State of Data Journalism Survey 2022 you could do so by heading over to datajournalism.com slash survey slash 2022. And just like last year, you could win some cool prizes. Conversations with Data podcast is an initiative by datajournalism.com powered by the European Journalism Center and supported by Google News Initiative. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.